As I mentioned probably two services ago, John, as he writes 1 John, punctuates John, 1 John and 2 John with the phrase, These things write I unto you. He tells us specifically why he wrote what he wrote. It gets right to the root of the matter. It's a short book. I was telling Brother Davis, and we were talking about books of the Bible the other day, and I was saying, isn't it amazing how simple First John is, and yet so profound, and you really, as you get into it, it's amazing just the, the depth of things and really what John's trying to cover. And John, as you know, was called the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described in, in the Gospel of John as the one who laid his head on the chest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, I, think, I think just like a lot of us, you know, we, you know in, in old days, the, you'd have the, the, the teacher-disciple process. And uh, the disciple was expected in those days really to replicate everything that the master did. I mean, they would follow his mannerisms. They kind of went what he did. They followed his discipline. I mean, they replicated everything that the master did and certainly as we read through first first john we find john replicating not just the the life of the lord jesus christ and his walk because he's 90 years of age when he writes this but we also see him replicating the lord jesus christ just in his style of delivery in terms of how he addresses the people and speaks to them so he uses phrases like these things write unto you and so he wanted to emphasize certain things like my little children these things write unto you and you can't help but stop and pause for a lengthy period of time to just kind of dwell on those thoughts here and what he's trying to get across here but there's something else John does here, again, among the many things he recurrently brings out, again, because you've got to go back to, uh, we'll reference later on, but the problem of Gnosticism in the churches at that time and how it permeated the churches and it was a, a heresy and doctrine that was, that was being dealt with in that time, just like right now that we're dealing with the heresy and problem of Calvinism in our churches and churches that once were... Um, were uh, very fervent in spirit and, and winning souls to Christ. They let Calvinism creep in there. And, and because once Calvinism got its roots there and got ingrained through teachers and places where it was not exposed, it, it became a very insidious uh, problem inside those churches. And the churches started to decline in spiritual growth and maturity. And they started to lose their fire and their fervency. And not just Calvinism, but we even face today this, this hyper-grace uh, movement that's out there this, that, 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 that we talked about last time. It's just this antinomianism uh, thing that's going on that's, just, that's out there where, where people are perverting the grace of God and saying, well, the grace of God lets me, lets me do whatever I want to do. And they're saying it gives them a license of sin. And so, you know, we, we have to take our time to expose these things and remind ourselves what the Bible teaches. But one of the things John does over and over again, a little bit more even so than Paul does, is he reminds us about the commandments of God. And you'll notice here that he talks about this commandment. He talks about keeping his commandments in verse 4. And he's talking in generality about keeping the commandments. And then we get down a little bit further here into verses 7 and 8. And he pauses there to kind of just bring out to our attention this matter about an old commandment and a new commandment. Now this old commandment and the new commandment are one and the same. But he talks about being an old commandment that you had from the beginning. But something new. You know, it's kind of like cars. It's like the fact that you have a car that comes in. I think about, uh, I think about let's say, the, the, the Toyota Camry. You know, you go back to the early days of the Toyota Camry. is considered to be a very well done car. And today it's still considered to be a very well produced car. But today you compare the original Camry to today's Camry. I mean, they're two different cars in the sense that the, the, the new Camry is, is one that it's newer in value. And newer in terms of just its pricing. And newer in terms of just all the ingenuity and things that go along with that. And he wasn't saying that the old commandment was bad, but he's saying that I want to present to you something that needs to be made new to you because you're not practicing what was old that was given to you. And so when we look at the word commandment here, it's very interesting. We read commandments and we think about it. We have just a general sense of it, but we have to remind ourselves that the commandments of God, that there's some encouraging things that the Bible says about commandments. For instance, consider with me Psalms 19.8. The Bible says, The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. Psalms 119 verse 48 says, My hands will I lift up unto thy commandments, he said, which I have loved. Psalms 119 verse 86, he says, All thy commandments are faithful. Uh, Psalms 119 verse 98, he says, Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies. There's a good reason why you should read the word of God. Psalms 119 verse 151, he says, Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Uh, verse John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Now, again, Paul, John wrote this to enforce the matter of a new commandment and an old commandment that was lacking in the behavior of these believers. Again, as we look at this, we said earlier that belief determines our behavior and doctrine determines our duty. And we're going to see how John meticulously works this. Now, we're going to see some things about this passage of scripture that's going to weave it all together. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, we see a congregation. He dresses this church at Ephesus as my 
little children. The word children is the word technon. Means just as it means little ones, young, immature children. It was a term teachers used in those early days of making a disciple, developing someone that he was, uh, you know, he was serving as a mentor, and, and the one he was mentoring, was, he called them a child there. And he starts off by addressing this congregation's little children. Now you have to ask yourself the question: Why do you do that? Why well, think we can go back to John chapter thirteen? Turning your Bibles there with me for a minute, but you can go back to John chapter thirteen, and I believe there in that upper room, as Jesus was giving the fireside chat to his disciples before he's to be crucified, there are some things he mentioned here that have become the baseline here for First John chapter two that was ingrained inside of them that they, that, that he gave them there. And in 1 John chapter 13, after he washed your feet and he told them, happy are you if you do these things, and Judas went out to betray him, Jesus still had more things to say to them, and he's not even at the crux of everything he wanted to say. And we get down here to chapter 13 and verse 33, and notice some things Jesus says to them. Because embedded inside of John's mind is this phrase Jesus used. This is the first time that Jesus used the term little children with his disciples or his apostles. And he used the term children again in John chapter 21 when they went out fishing with their backs in from God. He's using it because this was a congregation that had been taught the word of God. This was a congregation, I'm talking about the, the congregation John was talking to or writing to. This was a congregation that had been taught the word of God. This was a mature, this was a congregation that should have been considered a mature group of people. Remember when John, when, when Paul found of the church at Ephesus there, somewhere around 45 or 50 A.D. around there. And so, at the time John is writing this, this congregation now is about 30 years old. They've been around for a period of time. I mean, they've had many celebrations, and they had grown from just a nucleus of a core group of people. They had grown there. And, 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 and from the church at Ephesus, you remember there in Acts chapter 19, the Word of God spread throughout all of Asia. I mean, this was a church that had godly influence. This was a church that helped start other churches and got the Word of God out. And, and pastors were trained, and, and great things were being done. And so you've you got to remind yourself that he's addressing people that are supposed to be mature, but he calls them little children. He says, you're my, you're my technon, you're my young immature ones. And that seems kind of bizarre to be out there that he would say something like that to a group of people that he had nurtured and he had been around with, but he calls them little children. Well, Jesus did the same thing with his disciples because there were little children in their faith. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. They're behaving like little children. Lord, can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left when your kingdom comes? Lord, you can't, you can't leave us right now, Lord. And there's tears coming down their eyes and they're begging him not to leave. Read John chapter 14. In verse 34, Jesus said, which kind of gives the baseline for what John is going to speak about in 1 John 2. <coughs> he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now you remember, now John doesn't get into it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke get into it. They talk about, they, they talk about the friction and the rivalries they were having amongst themselves about sitting next to Jesus. And, and I think, it, especially to John, I, I mean, we'll see this about John later on, but John was a man that was prone in those early days of his ministry, James and John, to having a lot of friction. And they saw a man that was not uh, with them, that was preaching the word of God. And they said, well, we saw some doing these things. And, and Lord, do you, want us to, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and, uh, upon them? And they were nicknamed the Sons of Thunders. Remember that? They were called Boanerges. They were, they were called the, uh, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Remember that? And uh, because there was, this, uh, there was that, that kind of that edge they had about them. And so Jesus is speaking in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And that loving one another was not a new commandment, was an old commandment. It was embedded in Deuteronomy 6, 5 and was embedded in, in, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8 there. And so he goes on by saying, by this... Shall all men know that you're my disciples? Jesus is looking at these men who are bickering and fighting and, and there was hostility among themselves and they were angry with each other. And he said, listen, I can't unleash you to the world yet. I can't have you go out there and preach my gospel yet. He said, just look at yourself. He says, by the time you guys come back and you'll be comparing stories and you'll be comparing about who did what and who did better for Jesus and there'll be rivalries and factions among yourselves. He said, listen, the world's not going to know that you're my disciples if you're having rivalries and competing with one another about positions and power wrangling and things like that. He says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. He's talking about discipleship. Authentic Christianity. We go back to chapter, first John chapter 2, and you notice this, he said, uses the term little children to speak to them. 
Embedded in John's mind, he's thinking, you know, Jesus spoke to me and Peter and the other men as little children because we had factions and problems. And he's thinking, you know, I was right at the root of the problem. Me and my, my brother, my, my mom came, Salome came, and she came along. Jesus said, would you put James and John next to you? He says, man, I was, I was right at the heart of the problem there. And he's writing to this church here because he's watched his churches. Gnosticism had made his way in there. And you remember there, as we'll see in a minute, that it, it, it gave a differential about different sins. And, and, uh, and it got them to the place where, they, where, where people said, well, this is a lesser sin, and that's a greater sin, and this is a lesser sin, that's a greater sin. And, uh, and so they're, they're at this place right now where, where John realizes that as he's addressed his church, there's a lot of problems in this church. There was a lot of problems dealing with relationships within that church he had to deal with there. And for them to get their hearts to the place where God could bless them and use them. He said, we've got to do what the heart matters there. Listen, he talks to them as little children. Children are fun. They're fun to be around. They're fun to watch them as they do things. They slip and fall. They say things to you. They repeat things. They mimic things. They, they impress you with their intelligence. They hear something one time. They amaze you. They start saying, I mean, some children are fun. I mean, I don't know about you, but I love being around little children. They're fun. Children are forgetful. They forget what you tell them. They forget the commands. They forget the things they're supposed to do. They forget they're supposed to brush your teeth. Children forget. Hey, children have friction. Children easily have fights with another. They compete for things. They fight for things. Children have fights. He's writing to disciples who are behaving like little children. We see the congregation. Notice number, number two, the council. Look at verse two and three. Verses one and two, excuse me. The counsel he gives them in verse 1, I spent time on it last time, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight. But the counsel he gives them, and I'm going somewhere with this, he says that ye, my little children, these things write unto you, this is counsel, that you sin not. Now the apostles both summed it up to this, this way. I mean, we saw this in 1 Corinthians 15 last time I was in there. Paul said, awake to righteousness and sin not. John said, these things write unto you that you sin not. They knew what their sins were. You know what your sins are. I know what my sins are. You should know what your sins are. And sometimes we could be sitting there as we did this week under intense preaching under Brother Sam Davison, and I'm certain God spoke to us about sins in our life. Uh, Sunday nights he talked about authentic discipleship. Man, I, I don't know about you, but boy, that just got me going on things. But man, there's a lot of things I need to improve in my discipleship. Amen. And John knew about this church. Gnostic teaching separated sins of the flesh and of the spirit. They, they said, well, sins of the flesh are not that bad because all flesh is evil anyway. But it's sins of the spirit that are really problematic. And, and uh, because of that, it, there was licentious uh, lifestyles that were going on in the church at, at Ephesus there. And they were, there was this hyper-grace type of attitude, this radical grace type of attitude that they had there. And they, they, they said, well, not all sin is bad, but sins of the spirit are bad. But there was a sin of the spirit that John is going to get at here that was bad, that was within their congregation, that was eating away at this congregation like a cancer that needed to be dealt with. And so John is having to, he's writing through this because he loves, he's, remember, he's the apostle of love. He he loves them and he wants to be helpful to them, but he realizes he's got to get right to the root of the matter. So the first thing he says here is that these things right unto you that you sin not. Now he's telling them, you're going to sin, you're going to sin, and I'm going to sin. You're going to, have, you're going to lose your temper, you're going to say something you shouldn't say, you're going to have an attitude you shouldn't have, you're going to be unforgiving one moment, something bad will happen in your life, some disaster will happen, you'll have bitterness in your life, and something will happen and you might get discouraged or disappointed and you may withdraw yourself from the fellowship of God's people and as you withdraw yourself from the fellowship of God's people, you find yourself, you're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not walking with God, you're not spending time with the Lord, you find yourself gravitating direct, you should not, or you might be in a place where you may choose some, some a direction with some friendships that you should not have, that you you know that you know from your early learning in the Bible that you, there are friendships you should not have. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the godly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You know what the Bible teaches, but you find yourself gravitating towards that direction. Listen, everybody sins. Everybody finds himself in some kind of sin or another. And remember last time in 1 John chapter 1, he had to get to the root of the matter because they were denying that they were living in sin. They were denying that they had sin in their life. If any man, if he says here in verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he doesn't dwell on the sin problem and he gives us counsel. He reminds us that there's two things God gives us that gives us victory over sin. Number one, victory number one is the fact Jesus Christ is a propitiation for all of our sins. Amen. Now we do an disservice and we do an injustice. If all we do is we hammer on the sin. We don't talk about Jesus being the propitiation for all the sins of the world. Amen. 
In his propitiation, he satisfied all of God's righteous demands for sin. He appeased the justice of God. The wrath of God is turned away from it because of Jesus Christ paying the price and being the, being the, the sacrifice for all of our sin. Jesus Christ, the propitiation for all of our sin. He said in chapter 1, verse 7, when the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. Hey, thank God tonight that we can come under that blood over and over and over again. We can come under that blood because it keeps on cleansing us from all our sin. He is our propitiation, but it gets even better because he tells us in verse verse 1, that also we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, Jesus is our advocate. He is our, he is, if you would, he is our paraclete who stands alongside of us as Satan accuses us and, and lambasts us before God and says all these things that make us feel like we're really bad. Jesus stands alongside of us. He is our great intercessor. Hey, remember the story there in Zechariah chapter 3? Joshua the priest is standing before God and the Bible says that Satan comes before God and he's, he's making all these bad accusations against Joshua because Joshua is standing there in filthy garments. Remember that? And the Bible says, we're not told who they are, but he said, take away those garments from him. Somebody was standing next to Joshua, standing, he stood with him, alongside him as an advocate, and he got those new garments, and he was encouraged through that. And remind you today, that when we get to those difficult times, we're just feeling that sense of conviction about our sin. Thank God tonight, that Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father, who stands with us, who pleads with us, who pleads for us, who prays for us, who's our great intercessor, no matter thick or thin, he's there all the time with us, who make of intercessions for us, if you would, according to Romans 8.34, that no one else can utter because nobody loves you more than Jesus Christ does. He gives us counsel. In verse 3 and 4, he tells about a competency. Did you notice that? Hereby we do know that we know him. No means a knowledgeable understanding, a firm grasp. You drove here tonight, you've been here many times, you know this is 2960 Merced Street. You know this is Heritage Baptist Church. You know this is the Heritage Center. You, you know that. There's nothing that needs to be re-explained to you, right? I mean, you know it. It's a knowledgeable understanding. It's a grasp that you have. Notice again verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know Him. We give evidence that we are His. We give evidence that we are his children. We give evidence that we're born again. We give evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in us. We give evidence by this fact. He says, hereby we do know that we know him if, if we keep his commandments. The word keep means to guard. Where you find it used, it's, in the New Testament, you have a, a prison keeper guarding the prisoner. The Roman rules were you let the prisoner go, your life for his life. Pretty strong. It has the idea of preserving, holding fast, keeping close. Holding firm, look at it again. He says, hereby we do know that we know him if we guard, preserve, hold fast, hold firm, we keep his commandments. Now he doesn't list out those commandments. He's just saying, we do know that we know him. We give evidence that we are his. We give evidence that we're Christians when we're obedient. He's basically, the bottom line, he's just saying, we, 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 give, we, we give indication of who we are by our obedience to God. Oh, is he one of his? Is she one of his? Do they obey his word? If you're a Christian, how come you're not in church on Sundays? If you're a Christian, how come you're not in church physically? Are you one of his? Why'd you say what you did? Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, we like to talk about, what did you do on Sunday? Well, I was at my church, and I did all these things at church. That's a wonderful thing. Hey, listen, you're more important to tell people at your church, what we really need to tell them is, you know, I had a wonderful, I just, I'm trying to live for God. He's my Savior. Amen? Amen? People can equate a relationship with, with the church, but boy, they, it's, it's mind-boggling for them to equate a relationship with God. A real relationship with God. And he says here, Hereby we do know Him if we keep His commandments. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. 
I mean, basically, he starts off or he's getting into something. He's going to lead us down to verses 7 to 11. And he's basically telling us in verse 3, now we know that we know him. We know that we are his. We know that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ when we're obedient and keep his commandments. I mean, the, the test is, you, we say, well, that seems so basic. It seems so basic, but we're not, we have a hard time with it. I mean, you think about when you start discipling with a young believer, I mean, just a whole matter of obedience. And I remember I had a, a group of men a few years ago that were in the office, and, and we were going through a discipleship. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and probably, probably with the six or seven men, it was really filled inside, the six or seven men, uh, there, there were probably five of them were just new believers there. Brother Roger, I think you were in that, in the, in that meeting at that time. And, uh, and, and a couple of the men, they, we were got into the subject here, and I forgot what letter we were on, but we got into the subject there, and we are working through it and talking about what the Word of God says. And uh, two of them, uh, the two of the men were, were renewed. They were really, really nervous about everything going on. They didn't want to make any answers or anything like that. And afterwards, they waited till everybody left. They said, Pastor Paul, we don't think we want to continue with this class. I said, why? I mean, said, look at the guys around you. They're good guys. They're here to support you. I'm here to support. They said, listen, what you got into today really touch some soft spots in my life right now. I just don't think I'm ready for that. What, what they really were saying is, I'm not ready to obey God based on what His Word says. And I don't say that in a condemning way. I just say, that, you know, that people struggle with obedience. Children struggle with obedience. Hey, adults struggle with obedience. A young man I was mentoring a few years ago, and he started off the summer well. He got the tail end. He was going totally opposite everything I was asking him to do. And I tried to have extra grace. I didn't, it wasn't like that before, but I tried to have extra grace with him through this process. And finally we sat down. We, after his last day before, he was going to go back to school and things. And I said, he said, well, what do you want to tell me? I said, I'm going to tell you, very frankly, you're disobedient. And I listed off all the things. I was very firm with him. I wasn't mean to him. But I was very firm. I said, these are all the things I asked you to do. You didn't do these things. You're disobedient. He had a hard time with that. He's okay now. He's doing really well right now. But he needed to hear that. And John wanted them to hear that, hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I mean, let's be, let's be, be honest. I mean, we love Jesus, do we not? I mean, we love Jesus. We love his word. But do people know that? Do they see obedience in our life? I mean, if we, we did a Bible study and all the commandments that the Bible gives, are we keeping his commandments? Are we doing everything he says we're supposed to be doing? Oh, we amen all through all this, but do we really know, know him in that way? I mean, he gives some counsel here, but notice number four. Now we get into the heart of the matter. We see the congregation. He calls them little children. We see the counsel. These things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's a propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. But we see something else. We see the competency. He says, hey, if, you, if, we, if we know him, we keep his commandments. But notice number four. Would you notice the confrontation? Now, John's going to get right to the crux of what he wanted them to see. Notice verse 4. He that saith. Look at verse 6. He that saith. Verse 9. He that saith. Paul had to confront them, this entire congregation, that what they were saying in verse 6 Excuse me, verse 4 and verse 9 did not match up the way they were living. He that saith. In verses 4 to 6, we see there is a contradiction. Now, as we read through 1 John, John is doing the meticulous work of a shepherd pastor. You read through this chapter, we get a little bit further down into, I think, verse 19 or 20, something like that, and he exposes seducers, he exposes false teachers. You know, the work of pastoring, you're supposed to expose false teaching. You're supposed to expose false teaching and, and false works and false teachers and things of that nature. You have to expose those things. Look what he says there later on. He says there, in, I think it's verse, verse, uh, uh, verse 19, he talked about the, uh, verse 18, about the Antichrist. They went out from us, and he talked about those who seduced him and, and uh, later on there. But now we get over here, he says, verse 26, these things have I written unto 
you concerning them that seduce you. He's talking about the Gnostics. Now, he doesn't call them Gnostics by name, but they, but he know, they know what he's talking about because that was prevalent throughout the, about the kingdom at that time and prevalent throughout all the churches there. So he has to expose uh, false teachers, but he has to expose something else. It's not only false teachers he's exposing. Here's the hard part. This is the part many pastors have difficulty dealing with. I have difficulty dealing with. This is the part that we all have difficulty dealing with. And here's the part he, that, that, that he brings out here. It's not just the false teachers. He's also exposing false believers. Those who said that they, that they were with him and they were walking with him, but their life was contradictory to that. And he's going to get into one specific sin. He's going to get into the one commandment that they were breaking, they were not keep keeping there. And he's talking about a contradiction of lifestyle, contradiction of things. Notice verse 4, he says, He that saith, I know him. Now, he said in verse 3, if we know him, we, we, we demonstrate we know him, we keep his commandments, we show our obedience. But he says in verse 4, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. He says, listen, there are some who are saying and boasting they're living for God. They show it on the outside, this pretense that they're living for God, but their life really is not living it out. But people who don't know them think they're cool and think they're, they're getting us all done. He says, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. He said, that man is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He says, listen, I'm tell you, you have some walking your midst that are telling you that they're real believers, they're true Christians, they're authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, but he says, I want to tell you, they're not keeping his commandments, they're not obeying God, they're not doing what they said they are. He said, listen, I want to tell you right straight up front, they are liars, they're the truth is not in them. Now that's strong. That is real strong. That's, you talk about ripping face, that is ripping face, Amen. First John 1 John 1.8, he called them liars in the congregation there. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Remember the story about the rich young ruler? Remember that story? He came to Jesus, recorded in Matthew, Mark. He came to Jesus there, and he said, he said, Master, Rabbi, how can I know that I've got eternal life? Now, before all his peers and everybody that was there, and those older peers, those older rabbis, that sounded like a pretty sincere question. Remember that? And Jesus said, well, you know, you know what it, the Bible says. You keep all the commandments of God. And he said, well, all these I've, I've kept from my youth. And, and he starts describing these. And Jesus lists off some commandments. He talks about adultery and murder and stealing, lying, obeying. He talked about five of, his, five of the commandments. Adultery, murder, lying, you know, false witness and obeying his parents. He says, I've kept all these from my youth. He says, he says, what am I missing? And Jesus made this question to him. He statement to him. He says, one thing thou lackest. Now that's a great thought for us for just a minute. What's the one thing you're lacking right now? What's the one thing lacking in our relationship with God? What's the one thing lacking in our prayer life? What's the one thing lacking in our fervency? What's the one thing lacking according to the Lord? What does the Lord look in our life and does he say, this one thing thou lackest? And this young man went off on things because he was very careful to stay within the, the scope of adultery and murder and lying and false witnesses and obeying his parents and stealing. He said, listen, within the scope of those five commandments, I haven't broken any of those commandments. I've, command, I've kept commandment number five. I've kept commandment number six. I've kept commandment number seven. I've kept commandment number eight. He said, I've kept those commandments. But listen, what Jesus had to get to, he says, okay, if you said you've done it, there's one thing you're lacking. He said, what is that? And that man, you can imagine just a smug look on his face. He's saying, Jesus, what is I'm lacking? He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, let me, let me just say this tonight. Jesus was not telling that man, if you sell everything you have, you're going to go to heaven. That's not what he's teaching. That's work salvation. Jesus was not advocating work salvation. He was trying to get to the heart of that man's problem. He was trying to get to that man and said, you know, before you can get saved, you, get it, you need to know you're a sinner. Before you can repent of anything, you get to know what your sin is. I mean, we've got to be real, real with God. Hey, listen, tonight, if you're not convinced that America has sinned, we're not confessing the sin of America, this country will never see revival. Let me say this tonight. If we're not convinced we have sinned, and don't you worry about the rest of the church, if we're not convinced we have sinned, the church will never experience revival. Amen. I'm telling you what the Bible says. If we confess our sins to him, if my people, which are called by my name. And the Bible says that man 
He lowered his head. He went away sad. He was brokenhearted because he had no inclination, no desire of giving everything he had away. What was that man's problem? I'll tell you what his problem was. He kept commandment number five, and he kept commandment number six, and he kept commandment number seven. He kept commandment number eight. He kept partially commandment number nine. The problem with that man was that he broke commandment number ten. He broke commandment number one. And commandment number ten was the fact, thou shalt not covet. This man was a covetous man. He coveted things. He wanted things. He didn't want God to tell him to give up his things or to give up anything for the mission field or give up anything for God. And because he was covetous, the Bible says this in Ephesians, all covetousness is idolatry. So he broke commandment number one as well. Thou shalt have no other God before me. He said, one thing thou lackest. That, that rich young ruler was saying, listen, I kept all those things, but Jesus said one thing thou lackest. Hey, the church that was at Ephesus that John was writing to, hey, we're a good church, John. Look, at, we're a mature church. We've been around 25, 30 years, and we've done all these things, and we've got buildings, and we've got deacons, and we've got pastors, and we've got all these things here, and we, we have the Word of God. But John was saying, yeah, I know you have that, but he says you've got corruption inside your midst. And he said you've got some things inside that are not doing right. I've done some investigation. I've got some reports, and there's one thing you're lacking. He says you're saying you're keeping his commandments, but but you're not. And the Bible tells us here, he says, I know him. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments. The Bible says he's a liar and he says the truth is not in him. Now he's blowing you wide open. He says, you're saying you have the truth inside you. It's not inside you. Then he flips it around. He gives a contrast in verse 5. Look at that. But whoso keepeth his word, and in verily is the love of God Perfected. Now that's an important phrase in First John. John is dealing with believers who in their behavior, the exhibit of their testimony, were spiritually immature towards one another. He mentions here, and he finishes off later on when we get to this in chapters 4 and 5, he finishes off by telling them that the apex of spiritual maturity is loving as God loves you. Loving as God loves you. And he's saying here, the love of God is perfected in the one who keeps the word of God. You know, someone who's seeking to be obedient, all they want to do is just do what God tells them to do. Amen? They just want to do what God tells them to do. And he says, he gives a contrast here. He says, whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. And notice what he says here, this, this final statement in verse 5. Hereby know we that we are in him. How do we know we're in him? How do we know we're his children? How do we know we have his fellowship? How do we know we have his favor? How do we know God is working life? Hereby we know that we're in him. When the love of God is perfected inside of our lives, when we're practicing authentic Christianity of loving the brethren, just like Jesus Christ loves the brethren. But he's not done yet. He's telling me in verse 5 that God's love is, when you're walking with the Lord, the love of God is perfecting you. You love the unlovable and you will, and you, you, you just, you know, you just, perfect love, you know, he just talked about love, cover, love covers a multitude of sins. He says in verse 6, he that saith he abideth him. Ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. We'll come back to that. So verses 4 to 6, he's dealing with this. He gets down here about this contradictory lifestyle they're living. But notice he does the second thing. is He deals with this contradictory lifestyle. Remember now, he's making confrontation. Now we get to verses 7 and 11, and we look at the confrontation, but notice we see contempt. My brethren, my, my little children, these things right under you, that you sin not. Now he's going to call it the sin. Bible preaching needs to call it sin. We, we cannot tiptoe around sin. We have to call it out. Now we do it in love. And we point to Jesus Christ who is our advocate with the Father. And he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. And if you didn't have that, life would be very miserable. Amen. He confronts them about the problem of contempt. The sin of contempt. In verse 4, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. Look at verse six, look later on in verse 9. He that saith, he is in the light. And notice these next two words. And hateth. Whoa. How many times have you read First John and you read those words 
hateth his brother. Does, doesn't that bother you a little bit when you read that? I mean, I mean think of them for just a minute. Let's be real. A congregation that's washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, a people hating one another? Is that possible? Is that possible? I mean, I mean, look what he says here. He that saith he's in the light. You're saying you're walking in the light. You're reading your Bible. You have your devotions. You even pray during the day. You tithe. You participate in faith promise missions. You even give out a gospel track in there. But the Bible says, he that saith he's in the light and hateth his brother. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hating my brother? But he doesn't stop there. He says, he says in verse 11, But he that hated his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because the darkness blinded his eyes. You go back to the book of Genesis, and right there in Genesis, we see hatred at, its, at work. The Bible says there in Genesis 27, verse 42, that Esau hated Jacob. Read in Genesis 37, 4, the brothers of Jacob, Joseph hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Sad to say, his father gave him a coat of many colors. It showed his favors, his father's favor and love. And, and, and I, you know, you know, you read some commentators, you get off on the stuff that, you know, maybe his father showed much more favoritism to him. And, and it gets off into, you know, about parents being careful of favoritism. I understand all that, but that's not really context of what that's talking about there. That was the son of his old age. He was Rachel's son that, that, that bore him. And he just wanted to show his son, man, I love you very much, son. And as all this drama unfolds in Genesis about Jacob and his brothers, when Jacob makes his way back to Egypt and he realizes that Joseph's been alive and his bro- the brothers had lied to Jacob during those years, you remember you get to Genesis 49, and in Genesis 49 I preached a series of messages about a year or ten, year and a half ago about the sons of Jacob there, if you remember that. And he goes through these things, he talks about these, bro- these sons and makes some spiritual predictions about them, prophecies about their lives. But he gets down to Joseph and he makes this profound statement about Joseph and, and his brothers. He says this in Genesis 49:23. he says, the archers have sorely grieved him and shot him and hated him. That's what he said about them. He says, my own sons, his own brothers, were like archers. They were adversarial. They aimed their arrows with malice and intent. They shot those arrows with one intent to kill their own brother. That's what he's saying there in Genesis 49:23. He says, the archers have sorely grieved him. And they, they put him through the ringer. I mean, they sold him for, for 20 pieces of silver. They didn't care where he went. And they were so cold and callous. They took his coat and they dipped it in animal blood. said, Dad, look at here. Some animal came and ate your son there. And Jacob grieved for many, many years thinking his son was dead. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. I mean, there's intent there. There's premeditation. I mean, you think with me for just a minute. The definition of hatred is a result of resentment, animosity, envy, jealousy, spitefulness, discontentment, disrespect, rivalry, on and on and on. I mean, hatred, I mean, there's a strong animosity. You can't, you don't even want to look at the person. You give them the cold shoulder. You have disrespect for them. You don't want anything to do with them. And if you can, you'll say something to disparage them. I mean, when hatred comes about, it's like Satan hating God and saying, I'm going to take your throne. You see, in a church, yeah, it was in the church. The church had been around for a long time. A church had been taught, John 13, 34, uh, and 35. And a church had been taught that, that we're to love our neighbor. A church had been taught that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. This was a church that had, had been taught these things. Listen, this was a church that knew Leviticus 19:17. Leviticus 19:17 says specifically, Thou shalt not hate thy brother. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirreth up strife. Proverbs 10, 18 says, Hatred is hidden with lying lips. And an even a stronger definition, go with me to chapter 3 of 1. John, notice verse 15. Because John is not done with this matter. He's going to get into it even more so in chapter 3 there. Because this church was not healthy. And this church was hurting. And this church was disabled. And this church was sick. And it was sick with the sin of hatred in it. And he says this in verse 15 of chapter 3. Whosoever hated his brother is a... Whoa. 
premeditated murder has its root in hatred. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's saying, if you're like that, he said, I've blown open. You're not a true disciple if you're not keeping his commandments. But you're not even saved if you have murderous animosity. If you, you are filled with retaliation and vindictiveness. And you're going to get at somebody. And don't tell me that hasn't crossed your mind. He says, you're a murderer. You don't have eternal life dwelling in you. And John, the previous verses, notice verse 11, 12 and 13, let's say verses 11 and 12. Brings up the very first mention of hatred and murder in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. For this is the message that we heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And Brother Justin, I just thought about this in our discipleship, and Brother Anthony, I thought about our discipleship. You know, we don't even have a section in all of our discipleship. In fact, I look at all the discipleship matters. There's no section in all the discipleship matters that talked about right in the beginning that, you know, the, the first step is knowing, is knowing that this is the body of Christ and you're to love one another. Now I'm going to get into clicks and stuff, but you know how it is. I mean, people come to church and they get in and they find, try to find their place here and they find their place there and they find their, and they just they kind of gravitate to people like they are. I, I don't I don't really have kind of I, I I agreed with it before. I don't agree with it now, but you know, back in the day when they talked about well, you need to get people connected and all these kind of things there, and I'm I'm, I'm all for getting people connected, but they need to find people like themselves. I don't want them finding people like themselves. I want them to find Jesus Christ. I don't want you finding people like your old appetite, your old natures. I want you to, get, I want you to be better than what you were before. Amen. 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 <clears throat> and let me tell you something tonight. If you're somebody who was abused during your lifetime, and you've been hurt, and you were maligned, and you were the last one picked on the basketball for a basketball game, and, and people said bad things about you, they made fun of you because of your, your stature, and because you're intelligent, whatever, like, listen, there, it comes a time that either, either you're very bitter over time, but you didn't tell anybody about that, or you're burning inside with hatred towards a certain group of people. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this tonight. I mean, you just look at right now. There are policies and things that our president who's in office right now has done. He is the most hated and vilified man right now on planet Earth. And you just go back over everything in social media and you read in the media, they're reading. I mean, they can't help but attack everything this man is doing. They has been so disparaged. I mean, for President Trump, I don't even know when he gets out of office some point in time. I don't even know if he's even going to be able to have the Trump enterprises the way they once were before all this happened. Because he's been so disparaged. He's been so hated. I mean, you look at the vilifying things they're saying to him. But, I says, but listen to me tonight. We look at that as an extreme. But I'm going to tell you, the church that John was writing to, that church had gravitated to being a spiritually on fire church. They were once on fire. They affected all of Asia in two years and getting the gospel out there. I mean, this was one of Paul's favorite churches. You read the book of Ephesians and he tells them some wonderful things. And, and it's one of, the, one of the most richest books in terms of uh, spiritual doctrine that we have there. But now we go over here to 1 John. We find a church that the aged apostle John is dealing with where he's dealing with the problem of hatred inside the church. You said, could it really happen in the church? Yes, it happens in churches. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Notice verse 12. That not as Cain. Not as Cain, who is of that wicked one. Go back to Genesis chapter 4 with me for a moment. I wasn't planning to do this, but go with me to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, notice going down to verse 2, we have two brothers. Cain is the eldest. Abel is born after him. They're just like all children. They're all different. Amen. They're not all the same. They're all different. They all have their uniqueness. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. They were both good in what they did. Let's commend them for that. Amen. Both have been taught because earlier in chapter 3, God taught the parents they're to bring a blood sacrifice. 
They've been taught that. And the Bible tells us, wow, both boys, they gravitated differently. Don't blame the parents. I believe the parents taught them everything they needed to do. Listen, you can't, you can only blame the parents so much. After a period of time, you have to realize children make their own choices. And when they make their own choices, it causes grievances and heartaches to the parents. And the parents have to work through it. I just talked to a preacher last week who's gone through the ringer on something like that, that same situation. But thank God the prodigal came home and came around. But thank God the preacher waited and he patiently waited it out and he waited it out and he waited it out. And the prodigal came on and was sharing that story with me. And I said, preacher, why are you sharing this story with me? I never asked you about this situation. He said, because I just need to tell somebody who perhaps could understand where I'm coming from. That's probably one of the greatest grievances the heartaches have. And you know what I'm saying tonight. Your child may not go astray, but if they do go astray, you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to wait. And you're going to have to realize that you need God to work in life just like God, just like the father did with the story of the prodigal son, because he had two sons that went astray from God. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought up the fruit of the ground as an offering to the Lord. Now, here's Cain's mindset. He says, I know there's supposed to be blood sacrifice. But he's saying, God, you've got to look at my produce. He said, God, I'm the best farmer around. And God, made me look at my corn and look at my wheat. He said, look at my pomegranate. He said, look at all the things I've grown out of my ground. They're the best anywhere. I mean, it's really good. And he said, you know what? I think God wouldn't be offended. I will bring up the fruit of my ground. Well, that's fine, but that's not what God said you're to bring. Right there, it diffuses work salvation. And Abel also, he brought of the firstlings of his flock. Now, he knew what God wanted. And of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain to his offering, he had not respect. Notice this, Cain was very, what's it say? Now, who's he mad at? His brother. He did me up again. He made me look bad. He was very wroth. Just kind of say, you know what that means? He hated his brother. He hated his brother. The Lord came to Cain, notice this. Why art thou wroth? Wrath is anger out of control. Wrath is anger that seats, that is vindictive, retaliates, seeks revenge. Why is the countenance fallen? Why are you giving your brother the cold shoulder? But basically, he's telling Cain, Cain, I haven't seen you. I haven't seen your your devotions in a long time, son. Why is the countenance fallen? Where have you been? Now, he knew why, but he's asking him, because Cain wouldn't come to God. Cain felt in his own right that he was right and Abel was wrong. He felt he was right and God was wrong. We said that last time about sin. But you notice verse 7. And this is a reminder to us. If thou doest well, you obey God, love the Lord, keep his commandments, Shall not thou be accepted? Don't you think you'll please God if you just do well? You confess your sins? But notice verse 7. But if thou doest not, he says, if thou doest not well, he said, now listen, sin lieth at the door. Let me tell you tonight, when we have this friction, this animosity is building up in our heart, listen, you say, could it, could it happen here in his baptistry? It could happen in any church. It could happen in any church. It happened in Corinth. It happened at Philippi. You say, it happened at, yeah, it happened at Philippi. They're two sisters, Euodice and Syntyche. And friction and hatred. We go back to 1 John chapter 3, and he says this in verse 11, not verse 12, verse 12, not as Cain who was of that wicked one. Whoa, now there's the problem right there. Not as Cain was of that wicked one, and he slew his brother, wherefore he slew him, because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's bitter, hostile hatred in the church. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Notice how he gets into this for a few moments. He said in chapter 2, verse 9, He that saith he's in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. You're in darkness. 
He goes on further in verse 11. He says, he says, he that hated his brother is in darkness. No, no, what's he talking about there? You can't see. You're blinded. You're walking aimlessly. You're walking in darkness. You have no direction. You know not where you're going because of darkness blind. You're, you're blind. You, you can have your devotions. You can be in church. You do all those things. But he says, if you're living with that kind of animosity in your heart, that kind of resentment in your heart, he says, you're walking in darkness and you're blind. And you cannot see. By the way, Peter said this about blindness. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. Walking in darkness. He says here in verse 11, uh, excuse me, in verse, verse 10, he said, He that loveth his brother abideth in light, and there's none occasion to stumble. Now the converse can be said of someone who's, got, who's filled with hatred in their heart towards somebody. They have this animosity, resentment in their heart. He said, that person is prone to stumbling, and they make other people stumble as well there. Well, there's hatred, there's favoritism. There's hatred, there's preferential treatment because you'd rather give more affection to someone else than to somebody you despise. Remember 1 John 1, 5? Go back there with me, please. 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light. Remember that? He talks about walking the light. You know, light radiates, amen? Light gives reflection, but light also reveals First John 2, 9, he that saith he's in the light. They weren't in the light. He was hating their brother. They were in darkness. Being the light goes back to verses 4 and 5, or being obedient to the word. Being the light, as he said in verse 6, is walking even as he walked. And how did he walk? Because God is light. There is no darkness in God. To be in the light means to be sincere and without offense, as Paul says, and I think it's in Philippians 1.10. The word sincere is a very interesting word. In Latin, it's two words. It's two words that mean the following, without wax. When Paul used that word sincere, I'm talking about a Christian life, about our testimony. The idea that came to everyone's mind were the sculptors of that day. Sculptors that made a defective and flawed, had defective and flawed workmanship and they knew that they would hide their defects and flaws by putting wax in between the cracks and co- using wax to cover it up so that it, it would, they would fool people and they would sell it, uh, they would sell it that way to people. The problem was is that when the heat, when the sun came up and it got hot, the wax would melt and it would expose the flaws. Sculptors that were genuine, sculptors that were very real and prided themselves in good work. The Bible says that they would say this, the word sincere described them that they were without wax. They didn't have to cover anything up. There was no need to cover anything up because what they gave was genuine, authentic. Listen, when we have, when when our Christianity is lacking in obedience and our Christianity is loving what God says we're to love with and it's lacking that way, you know what we're doing? We're trying to cover it up with wax. We're trying to cover up what we're doing with our works and trying to cover what we're doing with our personality and cover up what we're doing with our words. The truth of the matter is when the heat of God's word is applied to us and the heat of his presence is applied to us, the wax starts to melt and it starts to give away and reveal what we really are. I said children are fun. Children are forgetful. Children fight, but children are fleshly. Hey, Galatians 5.20, hatred is a work of the flesh. He that saith he's in the light, and hated his brother is in darkness even till now. He addresses a congregation. He gives us counsel. He speaks about a competency. He makes a confrontation as we close. Would you notice the commandment now? Go to verses 7 and 8. Brethren, I write new new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. 
The beginning speaking about we have the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13, verses 33 and 34. By this shall, in verse 35, by this shall all men that, that know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. He added them. But they had it at the beginning when, when the church was started and part of their discipling process. They were taught to love one another. They were taught about unity. I mean, he writes about that. Paul wrote about that in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Paul wrote about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He said, and walk in love even as Christ has loved us and to give himself as a sweet-smelling savior for us and a sacrifice for our sin. We're to walk in love. I mean, Paul saturated Ephesians with this matter of love. He talked about the love of God in first in Ephesians chapter 3 there. He says, this is nothing new to you. He says in verse 7, he says, what I write to you, I'm not writing something new, but I'm giving you an old commandment to which you had from the beginning. He said, this is something that you already have. This is something you've already been given. This is something you already know. Hey, here is Baptist Church. I, God has not given us a new commandment. This is something we already know. It's nothing new. But it is new. Because if we're not practicing it, until we practice it, it's something that we need to make new in our life. It needs to be new and fresh in our life. That we put aside our differentials. We put aside our preferences. We put aside all these weird preferential ideas that we have. And realize the, the bigger picture is this is the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is deserving of you and I loving this body and caring for this body. And taking care of this body. Not trying to power wrangle, find our way into place. But realizing if I didn't have any position, I didn't have any ministry. What I do have is the ministry of loving God's people even as God wants me to love them. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. As the darkness passed and true light now shineth. John preceded this by talking about holding fast the commandments by walking in love even as Christ Jesus Christ walked. 1 John 4.12, you'll turn there, says this. No man has seen God at any time. We love one another. God dwelleth in us. And here again we find it. His love is perfected in us. You know that saying there? It's a wonderful day when we get to the Christian life. People don't annoy us. People don't bother us. People are not unlovable. We suffer all things. We endure all things. For our love covers a multitude of sin. And we go on a little bit further and realize that we are progressing in our Christian faith when that kind of love is working. Why do we need to keep this commandment? Well, notice some things. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, so that we're in the light and we don't stumble. Here in chapter, chapter 2 and also in chapter 4, he says, we need to keep this commandment so that his love is made perfect in us. Add your faith, virtue, and to virtue, patience, and patience, so forth, so forth. And he goes all the way until he gets to and charity at the top. But here's another reason. Go to verse 19. Excuse me, chapter 4, verse, um, verse 19, verse 17, excuse me. We'll get more to the next time we get over there. He says, herein is our love made perfect. Now there it is again. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Now that's a great thought right there. The day of judgment. So close tonight, I think the greatest, the greatest challenge we have as a church Is every church member loving this body, loving every individual the way we're supposed to love them? I can rally you to be soul winners. I got a message now I could preach and get you all fired up. But only God can make you love somebody else. You see, nobody, nobody. Nobody experienced hatred and hostility more than our Lord Jesus Christ. I said Donald Trump is the most vilified man. But what Donald Trump's going through doesn't compare to what Jesus went through. He understood hatred. Just a few days before he was crucified, he rode on that donkey into Jerusalem. They took those palm leaves and waved them. 
they laid their clothes out on the floor. They thought, they, as the preacher said the other day, they had a false idea about the Messiahship. The high priest come out there and with Pilate. That same group of people. They said, he's God. Said a few days later, crucify him. Man, I want to tell you right now that nobody understood hatred more than our Lord Jesus Christ. They spat on him. They cursed him. They vilified him. They reviled him and reviled not. I mean, all these things happen to our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you, you understand that if you've ever been the victim of hatred, you understand it is not a good feeling. It starts with disrespect, cold shoulder. You know something's not right. You know something's not right. So the love of God is perfected in our hearts. God's more concerned that our heart is pure than He is in our performance. We're so performance driven that we think we have to do this and this and this is to please God. No, just as he told just as he told Cain, he says, If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. It happens in marriages, it happens in families, it happens in churches, it happens in preachers' fellowships, it happens among Bible colleges, sad to say. It's animosity. And he tells us here, as we close, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself so to walk, even as he walked. Let God's love be perfected in our lives this morning, this evening. That we'll obey him. We'll show authentic discipleship. That people know we're his disciples because we love as God loves us.